Let's pray again briefly. Lord, give us understanding today as we open your word. Uh, not just intellectual understanding, but a heart understanding and, and openness to your word. A personal openness to it. A willingness to take to heart what your spirit has said to the churches. A willingness to submit to you, to take your counsel, which is always the path of blessing for us. Uh, Lord, help me to teach it rightly and well and give the hearers discernment and grace to hold on to what is good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of my friends said to me one time, he said, I can't stand children. He said, they're so immature. <laughs> he said, now, in fairness, he said it for, you know, he said it for humor. You know, he, he could see the irony before he said it. But, you know, of, of course they're immature. They're immature by definition. And, and really, most of us, unlike him, most of us are fine with it. We understand that that's the way it is. It's just how it is. We, don't, we do not hold babies, you know, morally responsible for doing what babies do. Uh, we understand that they are going to cry whenever they want something, and we really excuse them for leaving us to figure out what it is. They don't even tell us. They just, they just let us know that there's something wrong. They seem to operate on the premise, all babies do, that everyone else in the world lives to serve them and their needs and their desires. And if their needs and desires are not being served at any particular moment, they seem to regard it as an outrage and it, it should be announced at the top of their lungs until somebody comes and fixes it, whatever it is. And without a thought for others, they don't care if it's two in the morning and you haven't slept. You know, they, they're just gonna they're just gonna do it. They and there's nothing to be done about it. We we don't hold them respond. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with them. In our minds, there's nothing wrong with them. They don't need they shouldn't be scolded for they're being so self centered. <laughs> so demanding. But we just understand that, that that's it. That that's just the way it is. That's the way that's the way it has to be. There are no shortcuts to maturity. Non-baby behavior cannot come, and everybody understands this, or most people. Non-baby behavior cannot come without the passage of time. It's just impossible. You can't baby. You, you don't blame the baby for these things. He's just a baby. She's just a baby. She doesn't know any better. That's just the way it is. That's the way. That's the way it happens. We all, we also understand that babies need nourishment appropriate to their state. I mean, we don't give them what everyone else is eating. We don't. We don't put the baby in the high chair and put a steak and a baked potato in front of them. You know, they wouldn't. They don't know. They won't be able to. Nothing about that would work. They couldn't cut it. They couldn't eat it they couldn't chew it they couldn't die swallow it they couldn't digest it nothing about that would work they need milk and you know of course we're no first corinthians 3 is where we're going you you've read this they need milk 
or formula. You know, they, they, need, they need what they need. And it takes some time, and that's the way it's just going to be. There's nothing to be done about that. That's the way it works. It's going to take some time for them. Really, it's going to take some time even for them to graduate to baby food, isn't it? It's going to take some time. And it's going to take more time than that to come to the place where they can handle in any, you know, in every way from being able to cut it or eat it with a fork or a spoon or even digest it. It's going to take some time before they're able to handle solid food. And once again, there's no, nobody's to blame for this. This is not a moral shortcoming on the baby's part or the child's part even. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. That's how babies are. They have to be understood. They have to be accepted. They have to be loved. They have to be cared for as babies because that's what they are. Well, there's an absolute, a definite parallel between human babies and spiritual babies. Spiritual babies. Christians of recent vintage, I call them. Christian, re- recent converts. People who have recently come to Christ. Here's one of the parallels. They simply cannot be mature Christians. They cannot be, right then they can't be. They can become mature Christians, but they, a new Christian cannot, a new Christian is not, by definition, a mature Christian. They can be zealous, they often are, aren't they? You know, a lot of people, you come to Christ later, I won't say later in life, but you know, be past childhood, a lot of new Christians are zealous, right? I was. Oh, it's just soaking it up like a sponge, you know, all the teaching and the training and the zeal and witness and everything zealous they can be zealous but they cannot be mature we have biblical warnings that church leaders should never be recent converts shouldn't be new christians no matter how impressive they are and with that zeal with a lot of times that new christian zeal they can be quite impressive (laughs) Think, wow, this is a this is was a get to hear. This he's gonna go right to the top. But Bible Bible says don't make that mistake. Do not put them in leadership. Here's here's it's first Timothy three. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. All right, let's just say this that brand new Christians, baby Christians, you know, recent converts have no matter how zealous they are, how impressive they are, they have spiritual vulnerabilities that they will not have when they've been tested and tried, you know, with the passage of time. They have vulnerabilities new when they're new that they will likely not have later. Now, the new the new Christian if he's, you know, he's, he might be willing to be an elder, be made an elder, be a pastor, be a leader of some kind. He might be willing, but if he's passed over, say, no, no, let's wait. That's no fault of his, is it? Is that some sort of a black mark against him? You know, should he feel like he's, if he's turned down for leadership or he's not made a leader, should he feel like they're saying something's wrong with him? He's got some moral shortcut? No. No, he's just new. 
He's immature. He's, he's young. And they're not to be, the new Christians, not to be blamed for it. Brand new Christians should just, they're, they're not mature by definition. And this is the stage, this, this is the stage where the uh, Apostle Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 3. And we're going to walk through some of these verses. 3, three 1, and I'm going to go through the second verse, Wayne. But I, brothers, and by the way, if you know 1 Corinthians 3, you know there's some scolding coming, you know. And he says, brothers. You know, you see, you know, see how he's gathering them in? He said, you know, every, he's, he's uh, it's a nice touch, isn't it? He's assuring them that they're fellow believers. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, he's referring to that year and a half he was in Corinth. Paul is the church planter. He's the one who planted this church. He's talking about those early days when he came. He says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, people characterized by the Spirit, people under the control of the Holy Spirit, people directed by the Spirit, people spiritually oriented in their mind and their ambitions and their attitudes. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh or people characterized by the flesh, you know, motivated by the flesh, uh, in, the, in the habit of ordering their lives after the appetites of the flesh and, the, and beyond, beyond physical appetites, but just human human pride, just, just humanity. But as people of flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, I'm going to leave that verse. Really, they, they, probably I would have started the verses. You know, the verse numbers are not part of the original text, right? It seems like, and even now, you're not ready for it. Should be the next verse, to me. But just take that first part. I fed you with milk, not solid food, and you were not, and you were not, uh, for you were not ready for it. He says, in that year and a half in Corinth, I taught you. Paul says. I taught you in ways appropriate to your spiritual state. And of course, you know, when he first went, most of what he had to say would be evangelistic in, in, in tone, wouldn't it? Or, you know, evangelistic in strategy. He's presenting the gospel. He's presenting the gospel and he's advocating for belief. But even after they, even after they became Christians and they accepted the faith, and there was a number of them, he says his teaching, Paul says, my teaching was appropriate for baby Christians. I gave you milk and not solid food. Now, how we wish, you know, when we read that, you know, if you, how we wish he would have defined milk and meat more, you know, solid food more. We'd, we would love, boy, wouldn't we love to have a New Testament list on what kind of teaching is milk and what kind of teaching is meat. We'd love that. We don't get it. But what, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about milk would be things that you would teach any new Christian as of first importance. Right? I've had, I've had new, brand new Christians. You know, when we, when we get to training, 
and I've tried to see where they are and what they know, especially if they've grown up in some sort of a, a Christian context, even if it's just a culturally Christian context. You know, what do they know? What do they know? Sometimes it begins with, this is a Bible. This is a Bible. There are two parts in it. There's an Old Testament. There's a New Testament. What's a New Testament? I asked a new Christian one time, and I said, what's the Old Testament? He knew there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. I said, what's the Old Testament about? He said, creation. I said, well, yeah, a couple pages, you know, a few pages. Yeah, they really are. You know, first, <laughs> first few pages, but it's about a thousand pages. So, you know, it's, it's what comes at the beginning. And what would Paul, I mean, just think through it. We don't have this for... We, wouldn't it be great to have tapes or transcripts of Paul's first year and a half at, at Corinth? We don't have that, but what would he have taught there? I mean, really, what would be the first things? I would think living by grace and not by law, right? Say, no, listen, it's not following a bunch of rules so that you can become righteous. It's, it's receiving and resting in this righteousness of God through faith in Christ and, and seeking to please Him and living that out. It's, it's obeying from an, you know, we walk by the Spirit. We, don't, we walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Holy Spirit's direction. We walk by the Holy Spirit's influence. We, he's the motivating force. We obey from an inner God-given desire. Not one you muster up. A God-given desire to please God, to serve Christ. We certainly don't. I think it would have to be in the first thing. We certainly don't live as if we could attain to some level of righteousness, right? So that we can earn our approval before God. So that we can become good enough to enter into His presence, to pray to Him. Prayer. This would be something you'd first. You would teach them, I would think, you'd teach them about prayer not as a uh, ritual, not as magic words to be spoken, an incantation of some kind. If you pray this prayer, you, God will have to do something. No, but prayer as a talking to God. Prayer as a child speaking to his or her father. Just speaking your heart to God. How to feed your soul on the Word of God. How it works that your soul is fed. It's your nourishment spiritually. What to do, what to do with your own sin. Confession before God. Repentance from sin. Resting. How to, how to rest in God's forgiveness. How to rest in that. Forgiving others when they sin against you. I think that would be, in a year and a half, you know, Paul's got to get in what's really most important in a year and a half. That had to be, he had to have taught on that. Forgiving others when they sin against you. Witnessing uh, to those outside the faith. Loving those outside the faith, as does God. What the Christian faith means to you relationally. How, how it impacts your life at home. How it impacts your life at work. How it, uh, your relationship with friends. 
what it means to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. How being a follower of Christ impacts how you relate to the divinely ordained authorities in your life, you know, home and work and, and the society, and, and, and yes, even the church. I mean, this is just like what we would think. I, I think what Paul, what would be these, the milk would be just about what's in almost any book you might pick up on, responsible book, <laughs> biblically oriented, uh, basic discipleship. Four new Christians. What do you teach a new convert to the faith? I, I grabbed a, you know, for some anti-examples. I grabbed, you know, writing this this week, thinking about it. and I grabbed a, uh, just a random copy of that theological journal I like, Bibliotheca Sacra, just to open it up for some real-life examples of inappropriately, inappropriate spiritual baby food. You don't take a new convert, a recent, you know, someone who's recently come to Christ, give them this thing, and so read that article on page such and such, the imagery of clouds in Scripture. It's a real article. Or, same article, the betrothal view of divorce and remarriage in the Scripture. Or, a re-examination of the word eternity in Ecclesiastes 3.11. No. <laughs> you know, the, uh, a, re-examination, a re-examination of the word eternity in Ecclesiastes 3.11, in fact, with a new Christian, I'm going to hope they don't learn that there is an Ecclesiastes <laughs> for a while. And if they happen to stumble across Ecclesiastes in their Bible, you know, I'm, I'm going to treat it, I'm going I'm to advise them and direct them the same way I would. A 10-year-old picks up a circular saw. I say, they take it away and say, you know, let's look at this for later. <laughs> There's plenty of time for that. We're not, doing, we're not doing Ecclesiastes right now. So what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3, really up to that point in the verse, you know, the middle of verse 2 there, he's saying, so far, so good. There's no problem so far at, at all. He's saying, remember when I was, you know, at the beginning when you were, I was with you for that year and a half in Corinth and you were just brand new in the faith. And you remember how I taught you then? And boy, those were fine times. That was wonderful. That was great. Uh, wonderful memories. But now he, now he drops the bomb. <laughs> In verse, the end of the one would start, the end of verse two, and then we'll go on a few verses. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now there's like no problem. It wasn't any problem. When I was teaching you, it was great. You were fine. You were great. The baby's not to be blamed for being a baby. It's a, you know, he can't, she can't help it. But then he says, even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh, characterized by the flesh, dominated by the flesh. For while, and here's the evidence, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow, I follow Paul, rather, when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? 
In other words, he's saying, you are still characterized by flesh, driven by the flesh, just your earthly human. You're just like anybody else would be. You're acting as if nothing has ever happened to you. You're, you're, you're acting as though you have not been brought into the household of faith. You're acting as if you have, are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You, you, you haven't been reborn. You're acting like it. You haven't been made alive to God through Christ. You, you are in now... And we don't know how long afterwards. We're probably talking five. He's there a year and a half. He's maybe gone three and a half years, maybe five years, maybe six years, seven years later. We don't know exactly how long. But whatever it is, Paul says it's been long enough so that now you are inappropriately immature. What was okay before, because that's just the way it is. A baby's a baby. But you you shouldn't be a baby now. And the evidence of that, the, Paul's evidence of for the, you're not grown up, they're, not, they're inappropriately immature, the evidence is the infighting in the church, but that's just where it starts. You know, when you read the rest of this letter, there's, there's going to be a lot of things that are indicative of a, of a spiritual immaturity inappropriate to where they should be by now. And really, when you look at the whole list, it really is kind of amazing. And it really tells us something, that Paul puts this problem of divisions in the church right at the top. I think most of us would tend not to do that. When we look at some of those other problems, we think, wow, that should be, that's the worst evidence. That's the thing that really needs to be fixed. But he puts this divisions in the church, but still, it's it's where he starts and there's this, uh, this general spirit of selfishness, personal pride, entitlement that kind of permeates the, the church at Corinth, and it manifests it, itself in any number of ways. But you see the, you see the general um, direction he's going here, the argument. He's saying immaturity is to be expected with babies. We simply accept it. They can't help it. They're just babies. But as the baby begins to grow up grow well grow older (laughs) what was accepted as normal age appropriate behavior becomes simply unacceptable (laughs) you know if the baby's unhappy for any reason we expect and we accept that he will cry until somebody comes without a thought for others when the seven-year-old behaves in the same way, throws himself onto the floor of the grocery store and screams and cries and flails about because mommy won't buy the candy, it's a problem. <laughs> it's no, no, it is no longer, no, it's no longer acceptable. It's inappropriate. You should be beyond that by now. The baby wears diapers, of course, because babies do what they do when they feel like doing it. And there's nothing to be done about it. 
But there comes a day, there comes a time when things need to change in that department. No pun intended. Things need to change in that department. It's no longer... All of this, this that has been normal, the normal situation, you know, it's, it's hard news for the little one, isn't it? It's not going to be normal anymore. <laughs> it's not acceptable anymore. And really, it's not going to be tolerated anymore. Paul is saying to these believers at Corinth, you're acting, you're still acting like spiritual babies, but it is no longer appropriate for you to be acting like spiritual babies. You should have grown beyond that by now. And we can draw certain conclusions. Now, I, I want to go on from this to the, you know, kind of the main, uh, t- the main teaching, what he's talking about in this verse about these divisions and the nature of the church and spirit, how spiritual maturity works with the church. But we can draw certain conclusions, you know, kind of... Um, well, primarily, you know, or, or first, we can draw certain conclusions right now about spiritual maturity. Here's one. Although spiritual maturity cannot come without the passage of time, right? It cannot come. That's why you don't have recent converts to be leaders in the church. They can be zealous, they can, but they're, if they're new, they're not mature. Spiritual maturity, although it cannot come without the passage of time, does not automatically come with the passage of time. Isn't that clear? They've had time to have grown from where they were. They didn't do it. So if you or I came to Christ five years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago, the passage of time alone is no guarantee or indication of spiritual maturity. That's clear from this. When it comes to spiritual maturity, it's possible to have fifty or sixty-year-old, you know, fifty or sixty-year-old babies, maybe adult adolescents. You might need milk or pablum, and it's a shame because you could have been enjoying a nice steak by now. Here's the second thing that is clear. This is a little bit, I, th- I think it's here in the text, that so you can kind of discern it out. Spiritual maturity, this one's kind of frightening, really. Spiritual maturity is not measured or indicated by mere attention or to or taste for uh, Christian teaching. You know, a lot of people love the Christian teaching. You know, love certain preachers. Love, you know, listen all the time and drink it in and have tapes and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it, it's good. It's good. But that alone doesn't indicate spiritual maturity, and here's why. What's the first problem he addressed? They're big fans of Christian teaching. They're such big fans of Christian teaching, they have their favorites. Oh, I like Paul. I like Paul's teaching. No, I like Apollos. I like Apollos. You know, they had all these parties. They're, they're fans of it. They're into Christian teaching. 
But somehow, they're being into Christian teaching or really loving Paul or follower of Paul and think he tells it the right way and others that prefer Apollos. Somehow, they're dr- loving this teaching of various kinds and, and seeing themselves as divided over the way, you know, who their favorites are. Somehow, that was right there in the... They had, they had uh, glaring immaturity at the same time. You know, this is, uh, this is important for, you know, like someone from my background. Because uh, I came to Christ among folks who tend, maybe it's the time when I came to Christ in the 70s, but I, I came to Christ among folks who, who tended to weigh their own spirituality by how much of Bible knowledge and how much theological knowledge they were acquiring. They tended to equate that with spiritual maturity. I mean, you know, come to my office and be impressed by all my theological books and all my commentaries and, and everything. For that matter, be impressed by my big long string of bib sacks, which is what us initiates called Bibliotheca Sacra, the journal, you know. The, you know, the, be impressed. But mere, I mean, this is clear from Corinth, mere enthusiasm for Christian teaching or for consuming Christian teaching is not alone a reliable indicator of Christian maturity. Because they, in Corinth, they were hot for Christian teaching and they, <laughs> they, they I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, you know, I am of Christ, you know, they, but somehow the maturity was escaping them. They were consumers of Christian teaching, but the but something was missing. I'll tell you something else, and you know it doesn't come from the passage, but it does comes from the letter. And if you've read most of you have read Corinthians, First Corinthians many times. But we're going to see later that spiritual maturity is not necessarily indicated by having remarkable spiritual experiences. I mean, you know what's going on. You know, when, when we get to the parts in Corinth, you know, we're talking about worship, order in the worship services. And Paul is talking, when you come together, someone has a prophecy, you know, and there, there's people prophesying, there are people speaking, speaking in tongues, you know, and all there's all that kind of stuff. There are things going on in their worship services where if you or I, legitimate things, legitimate things, where if you or I were in there, we would perk up, we'd say, wow, God is at work among these people. God is at work here. You don't want to miss going to church there, but what's going to happen? <laughs> and yet... At the same time, this is the nature of those, you know, of their worship service and everything. It's like a lot of, you know, it's like direct. God moved, God spoke, God revealed, you know, right there, right there. And yet, there is still at the same time in this church, in that church at Corinth, a kind of a, a generalized spiritual immaturity, inappropriate spiritual babyhood, Right? So that Paul addresses them all and says, you're acting like babies. So if those things, you know, experiences and the studying and 
or the you know consuming Christian teaching and, and all of that. If that's or just the passage of time, if those aren't indicative of spiritual maturity, what is? Well, here's what we can infer from this: the central and necessary evidence of spiritual maturity is a, a tr- transformation of character that comes from an attitude of yieldedness to God's Holy Spirit. I think, you know, Galatians 5, and you're not, not going to have Galatians and 5 in front of you, but I, th- I think Galatians 5 could be commentary, could be, could be Paul's commentary on, on, on this passage. Galatians 5, he says to another church, different situation, but I say walk by the Spirit, you know, walk by, I could not speak to you as spiritual people. I could not speak to you as people controlled by the Holy Spirit. I could not speak to you as people, you know, motivated by the, uh, empowered by the Spirit. He says walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. You know, as I count them up, the church at Corinth is hitting on about three-fourths of those. I don't think they're into sorcery. It didn't come up. Idolatry does. Sexual immorality does. Divisions do. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And by the way, think through that. How many of those are either exclusively or mostly relational, right? Love. It involves your relationship with other people, doesn't it? I like Oklahoma. You know, the play Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma, I, like, I think of uh, Judd sometimes in that pretend eulogy there that Curly was having for Judd, and he said, he loved, everybody and every, he loved everybody and every living thing, though he never let on. <laughs> Is it, you know, no. Love's not just something in, you know, in here. It's, it shows, right? And, that, and we're coming to the church, and the importance of the church. Love. Joy, peace, joy you can have them by yourself, I think. But, you know, peace, patience, that certainly involves other people. Kindness, that involves other people. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, that's other people. Self-control, against such things there is no law. There There is no law. Where there is a yieldness, well, let me put it this way. Where there's little or no yieldedness to God's Holy Spirit, like in in a church, there's just not going to be much love, and there's not going to be much peace, and there's not going to be much patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. And where the Spirit is not getting His way, the appetites of the flesh will be getting their way, and there's going to be lots of fighting and there's going to be lots of anger, and there's going to be lots of enmity, and there's going to be lots of self-absorbed and self-centered attitudes towards sex, and there's going to be lots of ways where people 
uh, put other things in the place of God and idolatry. And that's it. Spiritual maturity is not a matter of how old you are in the faith only. And it's not a matter of how much theology or knowledge you've been able to stuff into your head. What matters is whether... What matters is if God has changed the tree, is the fruit like the tree? Is the fruit good? What matters is having become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, is the family resemblance beginning to show more and more? That's spiritual maturity. Now, to finish the, to kind of finish the, the, uh, the tone of the passage, or really the main thrust of the passage, Paul says, he teaches, that this Christian maturity is going to be worked, the Christian maturity is going to be worked out in the context of the church, and the spiritual immaturity is going to show in the context of the church. It's in the community of believers where the maturity or the immaturity manifests itself to great blessing or great harm. And this connection between spiritual maturity, you know, maturing and, um, and the church is what's often missed in 1 Corinthians 3. But it's really crystal clear. I'll take the last 10 minutes here and try to show that. On this matter of forming divisions in the church behind the human church leaders, here's what Paul writes, beginning with verse 5, Wayne. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, comma, God's building. In other words, just stop there for a second. These personalities, Christian personalities, you are making so much of, Apollos and Paul, they are nothing in and of themselves. They're mere instruments in the Lord's hand. The Lord is doing it. They are tools in his hands. They cannot take credit for your conversion. They cannot take credit for your spiritual growth any more than a hammer and a saw could take credit for building the house. It's not them. If you really like the way Teresa plays piano some Sunday, you don't walk up here and compliment the piano. You know, if you if you you don't you don't come up here if you if you really you know think Kirsten was playing and just it was just lovely. You don't come up there and say, Kirsten, can I have a word with your violin? And then bend down and say, You did wonderfully today. It was beautiful. It was just and ignore ignore Kirsten, right? No, it's not the instrument. It's the instrumentalist. It's the one. And Paul is saying, Apollos and I were just instruments called by the Lord. He uses us as he sees fit. We'll be rewarded by the Lord for making ourselves, you know, putting ourselves in the work by saying yes to him. But God's the instrumentalist. He's the one to whom praise is due. We're just the hammer and the saw. Now look at verse 9, and this is what a lot of people miss. For we are God's fellow workers. Who's the we? In the context, 
He's talking about himself and Apollos. He could now it could mean there that we are God's fellow workers. In other words, Apollos and I are fellow workers together. We're on the same time. We belong to God. Or he could even be saying that we and my, Apollos and I are fellow workers with God. It's like God is a worker and we're working with him. It could go either way. It could mean either way. But in any case, the we in the context does not include the, all the believers at Corinth. He differentiates themselves from them. He says, we, Apollos and I, are God's fellow workers. You, you plural, you, you people, are God's field, God's building. You together, and this is where the southern, it would have been so much better if the Greek was like, well, no, if the English, because the Greek is like southern English. But the but the uh, but English, you know, the Queen's English is not like Southern English. It should be y'all. It's you, plural, are God's field. You all together. It does not say each of you is like a field. No, it's like each of you would be a stalk of wheat. But you together are God's field. You together, and to change the image, that he, you will together are like a building. It's a collect. Either case, it's a kind of a collective concept, isn't it? You all together are God's building. You all together are like a building. You're like you're like a cultivated field. And this is important because, especially in our generation, where Christian faith is. And life has been hyper-individualized, hyper-privatized. We've, we've tended to give an individual and privatized kind of uh, understanding of the passage that follows. And let's read it, starting in verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, right? Uh, materials that uh, descend in value and increase in flammability. <laughs> if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, the day of judgment because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Here's how I read that passage for years, and this is how it's thought of by many, many Christians, maybe you, up to now. I hope it changes a little after today. Here's how I read it. The foundation of your life is your salvation in Christ. If you've received Christ as Savior and Lord, your life is built on the rock. He's your foundation. And how you build on the foundation, how you live your life after that, 
is that's up to you. You can build on your salvation with good deeds done out of pure motives and, and uh, you know, the, the good things, spiritual growth, high-quality Christian living, and that corresponds to gold and silver and precious stones. Or you can build on your life with, a, you know, carnality and a spiritual laziness and an inappropriate immaturity. You know, you can, you can just do, you know, all kinds of things. You live life appetites driven by the appetites of the flesh. Or even go do, do good deeds out of poor motive, ill motive. Like the Pharisees, they do all their good works to be seen by men. You know, you, that would be wood, hay, stubble. Wood, hay, straw. And the judgment, here's how I read it, and the judgment of God will reveal the quality of each believer's life before God, and there's going to be reward for whatever is like gold, silver, precious stones. But all that's wood, hay, or straw, it's going to be exposed as absolutely worthless. But even if you built your whole life out of deeds and attitudes and desires and ambitions that God's judgment will reveal as worthless and unworthy of reward whatsoever, you yourself will be saved because the foundation of salvation in Christ survives the fire of God's judgment. Even in a total lost fire, the foundation's there. The problem with that interpretation, that I've, you know, that's how I read it for years. That's how even how you may think of it. The problem with that interpretation is that it has erased or or cleansed from the passage Paul's central concern in the passage as he was writing it which is that something which is something there's something holy and precious to God that should not be treated lightly and you should be careful what is it it's God's field it's God's building it's that temple of the Holy Spirit which is not you individually in this passage the church In the common interpretation I just gave you, where's the church? Church isn't anywhere in that one. It isn't anywhere in that interpretation. In the context, it isn't the individual life that's being built on the foundation. It's the church that's built on the foundation. You know, in our individualized, privatized way of of looking at it, I've even been asked whether, and maybe lots of times, if verse 16 is, a, is an admonition, a warning against suicide. Verse 16, can you put 16 up, Wayne? Do you not know? They say, is this about suicide? Do you not know that you are God's, 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And you... Uh, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. They say, is that about suicide? Does that mean if someone commits suicide that, they're, that, they're, that they'll be condemned? That they'll go to hell? You know what? It, it's not about individuals. It's true that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a child of God. But that's not what's in view here. These are plurals. Do y'all not know... That's what it is. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? The whole lot of you are God's temple. And that God's Spirit dwells in y'all together. God's Spirit dwells in this thing. 
that God has made us, His church, His household, His family. If anyone God destroys God's temple, that's not suicide. That's what you bring to a, the church you're a part of in the context. God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you, y'all, are that temple. That's just Greek. Y'all are that temple. So strictly speaking, in the context, whose judgment are we contemplating here? In the context... It's people like Paulos and Paul, workers who have been called and commissioned by God to work as his instruments in the building or tending of the church. And at this point in the letter, most of the believers at the church of Corinth could be excused for imagining that they're not going to be in that kind of that judgment at all that's spoken of there. Because they're not the workers, they're the worked upon. In, in fact, they might breathe a little sigh of relief, say, boy, wow, I'm glad I'm not going to be involved in that kind of judgment. I'm, matter of fact, I'm going to make a note. And, and so I'm going to think, not, I don't want to be an elder or a teacher. Or I don't want to get in that kind of position where I might be this kind of judgment. But, but you know, they're, they're in for a surprise because I've read ahead. And, and you've probably read ahead, too. And we don't really see it until we get to chapter 12. But there we're going to learn that God has equipped every single person with enablements, to call spiritual gifts, that enable them, that really commissions them to contribute to the life and character of the church. Every single one. And he, he's going to go on and make the point, I'm not I'm past my time here, so I won't like read it, but... We'll save it till we get there, but he even makes the point that, you know, the one up front, the one talking, he's got responsibilities before God, but they're no, you know, it's not like uh, they're the most important. You know, the foot soldiers are important too. You know, the, the one who's an unseen, they're just for This is where we started this series. This is, why I, this is why I said I've never liked the idea of the pastor's name on the church sign. What about the person with the gift of helps? What about the person with the gift of mercy? What about the person with the gift of administration that really makes the whole place go? Why is it the, the tongue that gets highlighted all the time? And the point is that this precious thing that is so important to God that God has called us into made us a part of something that is really is more than the sum of its parts. The church, God's building, God's field. It is uh, this temple in which, not the building, the church, in which the Holy Spirit dwells, manifests Himself in, in, in real ways. Each person has an impact on that for good or for ill. There might be someone up front and his responsibilities are great before God, but nobody is on the sidelines and 
Nobody's on the periphery. There are no mere onlookers, even if they think so. There is no one in the body who's been made a part of the body of Christ who does not affect the quality and character of that body. Even if they think so. I mean, think of this church of Corinth, and I won't go over all these, all these things. But what about, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to read about, we know there's Christians at that church in Corinth who have a, a lax attitude towards sexual immorality among the members, and Paul says, of such a nature that would make the pagans blush. How did their attitude toward, the, how did their attitude, even they were not the ones involved in it, but they think it's okay, they're proud of themselves for not being judgy. How did that affect the life and character of the church? Wood, hay, straw. How about, well, you know, just to pick, just to pick one. How, how about the people in the church who were suing other people in the church? How did that affect the life and character of the church? Probably not even wood, just straw. Let there's a, and there's a hint of this in First Corinthians three. He says he says verse ten. Let each one, each one, take care how he builds upon it. And it's not all negative, of course. You could contribute to the life and character of the church with Galatians five: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Self-control, gold, silver, precious stones. Nobody just goes to a church. Even if they describe, even if that's the only way they describe their relationship with the church, that's where I go. You don't just go. Your manner of going affects the life and character of that church. And Paul says, be careful what you bring. Matter of fact, even if you don't go where you would go if you were going, you affect the life and character of that church by depriving it of your, your fellowship, your gifts, your support and God cares deeply about this thing that's all in I'm over but here here's the here's the chapter grow up in Christ that God might use you as he will to build the life and character of the church that you are a part of in a way that he will reward. That's it. That's 1 Corinthians 3. Grow up in Christ that God might use you as he will to build the life and character of the church that he has made you a part of in a way that he will reward. 
gold, silver, precious stones. All right. Father, bless us each and, and, and really bless the church. Help us to think of it as it is that we might never treat lightly what is weighty in your eyes. May what is precious and holy to you be precious and holy to us, resulting in praise and honor and glory in the day of Christ. Give greater faith in every believing heart here today, and we ask, as always, that you would grant the beginnings of faith in any who remain outside of Christ and are without hope beyond this life and beyond this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.